morning. I want to share with you a series of short stories. Ooh, not breathing mic. About my own milestones of faith, or as I think is apt for these stories, my milestones of doubt. Thanks to an early encounter with C.S. Lewis's non-Narnia writings, I've come to see doubt as inherent to any kind of faith. Some of you have heard me talk about doubt before, or about my love of ambiguous, contemplative prayers and spiritualities. I'm thinking of those of you who helped me with the, um, the prayer begin. Um, but today I will share with you my changing relationship with doubt from early childhood to now, illustrating along the way the different phases I think I've passed through. And this first phase happened from about 5 to 12 years old. And during these early years of my childhood, I was a fresh Christian who had been given by the church and my parents all the how-to steps of what it means to be a good Christian and live a life of faith, hope, and love. Importantly, living a life of faith, so I was told, meant you needed to adopt an attitude of certainty. You should be 100% certain of God's love and presence in your life. Anything less was suspect and perhaps an indicator of unspoken sin. Now, I quickly developed feelings of inadequacy as a new Christian because I could never really feel that high level of certainty. I constantly prayed for salvation and became a bit obsessed as a child that I needed to say the perfect prayer with perfect words and with perfect feelings in order to be worthy of salvation. I could never do this, and so I was afflicted with unending uncertainty about whether I could make it to heaven. When discussing our lives of faith, one of the metaphors we often use at UP is the journey. Thinking in terms of journeys helps us realize that we are beings that are ever-changing, ever-moving, and hopefully ever-growing. This morning, I'm going to share some milestones in my journey with you. And thinking back over these waypoints, I was struck by how, in certain moments, it's often felt that my journey was moving in circles, spinning and spinning, but going nowhere. From where I stand now, however, I realize these weren't so much circles as spirals. The trip was dizzying, and there were many circles involved, but ultimately, I've landed somewhere different, at least for now, and that's all right. The journey always continues. And so as I share stories from this journey throughout the morning, I want you to think about Jacob wrestling with the man in Genesis 32. And it's worth pointing out that we often hear this story told as one where Jacob is wrestling with an angel. Jacob wrestles all night long with this man or angel. And that's a long time if you think about it. And I always wondered, what a person thinks about when they're locked in a night-long wrestling match. It's clear he felt determined not to lose, even asks to be blessed by this man or angel. But by the end of the night, Jacob recounts the evening by saying he saw the face of God. And remember, throughout the Bible, it's very difficult to see the face of God. Some might even say it impossible or taboo to look upon the face of God. But the man Jacob wrestled never told Jacob his name. 
part I find interesting. Jacob felt sure he was looking at God, encountering God, wrestling with God. But Jacob never received confirmation from the man that he was God. What does that mean? When I was five years old, living in Fort Worth, Texas, my mom and dad guided me into a prayer where I asked Jesus to come into my heart and save me from my sins. They taught me how to pray, including how to confess my sins, the part I would become obsessed with in later years. Um, after saying this prayer of salvation, I was shortly thereafter baptized um, in my church as a public proclamation of my choice to become a Christian, and everyone celebrated. When I was nine years old, I would carry my giant King James Bible bound in a colorful book cover depicting the Noah's Ark scene. And I'd carry it outside in my backyard to an old tree stump. I'd set the Bible down, I'd open it to a random page, and I would just start reading, preaching to the birds. I was training myself to have outward signs of devotion. And in these moments, I would always ask my mom and sisters if they wanted to come outside and listen to my backyard sermons, to which they would invariably respond, nah. No worries. I was on solid foundations as God's backyard prophet of Arlington, Texas. When I was 11 years old, I jumped on the trampoline, thanking God for giving me salvation after I had asked him 100th time, after the 100th time, to come into my heart out of fear I wasn't correctly asking in my previous prayers. But this time, I felt I got it right. And as I jumped on the trampoline and felt my body full of exhilaration, I started to worry, not for the first time, that my joy and sense of freedom was artificially produced by that warm summer evening flying through the air with my sisters rather than by the grace of a loving God. I would try to mitigate this shortcoming by praying, sometimes in tears, every night for salvation. Like I said, my prayers were obsessive. But all I could think was that I must be doing something wrong to feel so unsure. Today we hear from the book of Genesis and the story of Jacob in a wrestling match. Jacob and his family have been traveling, preparing to meet his twin brother Esau after a long estrangement. Esau is approaching with 400 men, and Jacob fears that he will be attacked by his brother's forces. Let us open our ears, our hearts, our souls, and our imaginations across the generations and listen for the good news of this ancient story. That night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven sons, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. After we, he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip, so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, Let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, What is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, 
Your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, which means he struggles with God. Because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, which means face of God, saying, it is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. For the word of God in scripture, for the word of God in spirit, for the word of God among us. Thanks be to God. So, as you may have surmised from some of Kendra's early stories, Kendra and I both grew up in an independent Baptist church in Texas, which split off from the Southern Baptists in the 70s because they were too uh, liberal for this church. <laughs> so we, we grew up in, a, in an openly sort of a self-identifying fundamentalist kind of faith. And one of the things that Kendra and I were talking about as we were like scrambling around trying to put this service together in the midst of our conflict, is a lot of really bad ideas that we had uh, picked up or absorbed from church. So Kent asked if I would do the offering uh, invitation this time, and I thought as part of that I would share some of the really bad ideas I had picked up <laughs> about giving in church from when I was a kid. Uh, one of my favorite things about the UP service is this offering time where Kent or Amy, so someone is invited up from the congregation to talk about why they're here at UP, what they find worthwhile, what they get life from, and why they give to the church, right? And to talk about the different ministries, the different things that the church is involved in, whether it's stop and shop gift cards to be given to people who are hungry, or thrifty threads, or the 10% of our annual budget we give away to different causes throughout the year. And I love that. Because when I was growing up, I, I remember being told as a kid that the offering money went to God. So it's, okay, I'm already a little confused because I don't, what's the transfer method? <laughs> and so I thought maybe, you know, I remember, I thought, okay, maybe they have one of those bank tubes somewhere in the back. Because <laughs> I, I knew about these tubes from going through the, the bank drive-thru with my dad, and you would get this cylinder, he would put paper in it, put it in the tube, and it would come back full of candy that I got to eat. <laughs> and I thought, maybe the church has something like that, and maybe it's really good candy, you know? It's like, that must be it. That's, so the transfer method was a problem already. But then a little bit later, uh, maybe the church was in some dire financial straits, I don't know. But I, I remember hearing something about how if you don't give of your lawn mowing money or whatever it happened, it was stealing from God. And I thought, like, well, shoot, like, that's not great. It's like, I don't want to steal from God, but also, like, beggars can't be choosers, you know? You're just passing this plate around. God could get a job, I suppose, if God needs this much money. I don't understand the financial system here still. So that wasn't great. But then a little bit later on, right, you start getting old enough to figure out there's no bank tubes and these sorts of things. I remember a lot of discussion about the fact that 
is I should give money to God because God will bless that money and make it, you know, come back three, four, five times as much, right? Which always felt to me a little bit like those check cashing schemes that are like, if I, I'll give you this check for a thousand dollars, if you'll just give me six hundred in cash, you can you can cash this check and keep the money for yourself, right? I mean, usually checks gonna bounce, right? So it always felt a little bit like that, and I, I kept thinking about these really bad messages on giving to church I had picked up, and how the basis for why you should give in either of these things was one, either kind of fear, right? You should be scared of some kind of retribution, right? You can steal from God. Or it was like greed, that you should give a little bit so you, you can get even more for yourself, right? And neither of those two things are great reasons to give your money. Right? Especially not to the church. And I think one of the things that I've noticed here over the last five years is never has an offering been, offering and ask been based on fear or based on greed. It's always been based on a belief in the work that this church is doing in the world, right? Whether that be advocating for people who can't advocate for themselves, feeding people who are having trouble finding food, clothing people who are having trouble finding clothes. And so as we pass around the plates today, or the baskets, more like it, I, I would invite you to, to give whatever you're able to, to help support the ministries of this church. There's no bank tube in the back. This all goes to pay the bills or it goes out into the world. And if you're a guest with us today, your presence here is more than enough, and feel free to let the basket pass by. Well. It took time, but as I emerged from my undergraduate college experience, I realized that perhaps doubt didn't need to be a problem at all. I had seen it as sin. I had seen it as an intellectual or educational shortcoming. But now I felt that perhaps it was just a normal human experience. And perhaps doubt could even lead to some beautifully creative things. Texts, art, poetry. I no longer have suffered from fear of death, but rather saw it as a challenge or push to find new forms of meaning that could fill in the ambiguous gaps of the world of gray. When I was 21, I went to Ireland on a class trip to learn about Celtic spiritualities, which included a whole other world of contemplative forms of prayer that opened me up from my former understanding of prayer as a straightforward conversation with God that always included a confession. I chose the picture of the spiral this morning on our bulletin um, for a couple of reasons. It's a picture I took when we had visited Glendalough in Ireland to see the remains of an early medieval monastic community. Our tour guide, who was a Roman Catholic priest, had us walk this spiraling labyrinth in the grass as a group in a single file line and contemplate the question, where do you come from? It was reflective, quiet, and very green. He might have even read a poem at the end. That moment didn't last very long in our two-week trip in Ireland, but it stuck with me as a brand new experience of how one might commune with the divine. Out in nature, with other people, 
appreciating the ground we walked upon while feeling the togetherness of the group. This seems to be a very normal human experience, but it felt sacred to me somehow in that moment. I since have loved the image of a spiral, which I see as someone beginning at an origin in the center and journeying outward, expanding, discovering, learning, seeing anew. We try along the way to figure out what it means to be human and to be in relation to the rest of the earth. And we do this with other people. Everyone does this, but we carve out our own way of doing this in a way that is most meaningful to us, in a way that perhaps makes us feel most connected to one another. In more recent years, I've begun to feel a deep comfort with the uncertainty that has come to define my own spirituality. The doubt is no longer sin, no longer a problem, no longer a neutral human experience of the world. It was now a central element of my own experience of the sacred. Doubt and the ambiguities it fostered were, for me, inspiration, an invitation to learn, an invitation to take risks, an opportunity to build. I see it not just as the destructive force we tend to associate with it, but also as an urge to construct, create, make anew. When I was 22, I moved to Boston to start a master's in theology. And one of my first discoveries was a writer and theologian from the late 5th, early 6th century called Pseudo-Dionysius. Pseudo-Dionysius calls God by many names in his writings. <clears throat> a sampling. God. The light, wise, eternal, existent, mind, wind, spirit, cloud, sun, star, righteousness, sanctification, redemption, creator of ages. He has many more names than what I could share with you this morning, but he says all these names are inadequate. He believes in God, but doesn't think we can pinpoint God with a name. Where some feel his descriptions are akin to gushing over the boundaries of what should constitute God, I felt an opening where light can dispel shadow, or an unfolding like the petals of a rose that eventually unravel to reveal the delicate center that anchors the whole flower. It's an image of God that tells a story of discovery, of stillness and being and appreciation for what is to me. When I was 23, I not only found a home at the United Parish with Brookline, but felt great relief when I first heard Kent's invitation to say amen, whether you believed a little or a lot, because I only had a little in me to get. I'm now 27, and each time I step into UP and hear Kent ask me to say amen, whether I believe a little or a lot, I consistently feel an openness, a curiosity, an invitation to lean in. I feel an openness in sacred texts, a built-in ambiguity 
that begs for listeners to parse out the messages of love, hope, and justice so that their readers may feel inspired to act boldly and love fearlessly. It looks a little different for each of us, which is why I think the ambiguity is necessary. When Jacob wrestles with the man or the angel, Jacob knows by the end that he has seen the face of God without that angel telling Jacob his name. Jacob did not need the certainty of a proper introduction because he felt the sacred in his experience. Sometimes his experiences come without words, and sometimes people write or paint or sculpt great works of art to depict those moments. I challenge us today to think about the faces of God we've seen and to think about how those faces of God have urged us to share beauty, practice stillness, lend a compassionate hand, or do something else in the name of love and in the name of God. And if you doubt along the way or sometimes feel like you're going in circles, that's quite all right. It's all part of the journey.